seated. I took the last month um, off from preaching. I was still working, and there was a lot of work to do, um, but the last month I haven't been up here in a preaching capacity, and I'm actually excited, <laughs> excited to preach again, and that's a good sign. And um, I'm happy and enthusiastic about teaching and starting a new series today called CBE. CBE stands for Community Bible Experience. It is something that the Covenant Church is doing all across the country together. And the purpose of it is, first of all, to read big. And so does anybody have their CBE Bible with them? Well, Jan has it, of course. She's waving it back there. If you haven't gotten your copy, there's copies available in the back. You can buy them for $5, and they're also free online, online versions, um, online copies. And so the purpose is to read through the entire New Testament in a big fashion. When I read, sometimes I want to kind of hone in and say, wait, that was interesting. I want to read that. I want to come back. Can, I, can we lower me a little bit? It's a little high. Uh, but you can't do that because we're supposed to read big. We're supposed to get the big eagle eye view, the big picture. So the purpose is to read through the entire New Testament in eight weeks. And that sounds like a lot in a short amount of time. It's quite doable. Um, it's basically five days a week, not even seven, five days a week, and you're reading 30 minutes a day. Uh, it's as long as it takes to watch an episode of The Simpsons. It's not very long. You can even listen to it on your commute and listen to the audio version. That's what I'm doing. And basically, we're getting this overview. I am surprised at the benefits that I'm getting. As I listen to the New Testament online and as we're getting this read big picture, I'm seeing things. I'm getting an overall intuitive sense. How many intuitive thinkers are out there? <laughs> you know, some of us are detail-oriented. Some of us, like myself, I need to have the big picture. I need to step back and understand what's going on. And you get a very big intuitive sense about this. The purpose is also to read real, read real. And we're reading the New Testament in a different way. It's the same New Testament like we've always had. It's the New International Version, except they've taken out all the numbers, the cross-references, the footnotes. And basically what you're reading is the real story, uh, almost in its original manuscript form, um, albeit in English, but reading it kind of with the flow, with the uh, chronological order, the thematic flow. Um, Luke feeds into Acts. Acts feeds into the epistles of Paul. And there really is a method to the madness. So we're reading big. We're reading real. We're also reading together. The purpose is to read together in community. Um, you know, when the Bible was originally dispersed, um, it didn't come in a Bible. It came in letters. It came in stories, and not everybody could read during that time, in the time of the early church. And what happened was they would gather groups of people together, and the story would be read. It was oral storytelling. It was oral tradition, and the story was told, and it was discussed together amongst the people. And we're trying to relive that experience as well, reading together. And so we have our smaller groups of people that are meeting in people's homes once a week throughout the week for two hours, basically having a book club. And um, I think every group has started. We have a group in Katy. We have a group in the Energy Corridor. We have a group uh, in the downtown area. The Energy Corridor group, did you guys meet already? Oh, meeting today. So 
you know, reading big, reading real, and also reading together. If you're interested in reading together and joining one of these book clubs, indicate on your yellow communication card. And so um, we're starting today with Luke and Acts. And the flow for the next few weeks starts from Luke and Acts. Luke was a physician, and he wrote a two-volume series. Part one is Luke, part two is Acts. And when you read through Acts, the story, uh, the apostle, the character Paul really overtakes the story. So that after Acts, we're going to read what Paul actually wrote, and we're going to get into the epistles. And then I believe it's going to start over with the Gospels with Matthew, and we're going to read from the Hebrew perspective. So there really is um, a method, and they know what they're doing. But we'll start today with Luke, and if we could play that video so you can kind of get yourself situated and oriented um, as we start this series with this first video. Let's show that. Most New Testaments, well, okay, almost every New Testament starts with the book of Matthew. The book of Luke comes a few volumes later, and it's typically separated from its companion, the book of Acts, by yet another book, the Gospel of John. Well, the time has come to experience Luke and Acts the way they were always meant to be read, together. Luke was a physician and traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. He wrote his two-part series in order to convince readers that what they heard about Jesus was actually true. Both volumes were addressed to someone named Theophilus, possibly a Roman official who sponsored and helped distribute Luke's work. Luke sees Jesus as sort of the ultimate multitasker. On the one hand, he's the long-awaited Messiah, the rightful king of Israel. But he's also a deliverer for everyone, regardless of their identity or background. Luke keeps coming back to this idea. He describes Jesus as a light for the Gentiles. That is, someone who's not just here to serve his own people. Luke says that Jesus is bringing salvation to the ends of the earth. Luke's first volume focuses mainly on Jesus' invitation to his own people to follow him. Then, in the next volume, the invitation goes viral, extending to everyone, everywhere. In volume one, the movement is all toward Jerusalem, the center of Jewish national life, and ultimately the backdrop for Jesus' final conflict with the religious establishment. In volume two, Acts, things move progressively out from Jerusalem as word about Jesus spreads across the Roman Empire. Now, given the story that Luke's trying to tell, you're going to meet a pretty unlikely cast of characters in these two books. That's because Jesus is for everyone, according to Luke. And for him, that includes outsiders and outcasts, those typically pushed to the margins. The poor, the disabled, tax collectors, women, children, everyone who was written off as damaged goods or unworthy or unimportant by people in Luke's day. Notice how they come into the spotlight in his story and become some of the very first people to follow Jesus. All right. And so that is a beginning introduction to the Gospel of Luke. And if you've never read the Gospel of Luke, have no fear. This series is going to introduce you. And my purpose uh, for this series is 
uh, to teach. And I'm going to be doing a lot more teaching-oriented stuff so that what happens is when you actually come to the book and you read it, you'll kind of have a general overview and a kind of intuitive grasp and understanding of the background, the, historic, the historical, the cultural um, the contextual background to what you're reading. So that's what I'm going to do. That's what I want to provide. But you cannot substitute my teaching for your reading, okay? So don't come here and expect to understand Luke just by listening to me talk. You'll understand it, but in order for it to come alive, you're going to have to read it. So I really, really want to encourage you. Covenanters, we call ourselves people of the book, And the big question in the Covenant Church is, where is it written? And so I want you to be able to challenge and say, where is it written? I want you to say, I'm a person of the book. I'm reading it. You're not just hearing it, but you're reading it as well. And to that end, here's where I want to push the ball back in your court. If you look on the bottom of your notes, you're going to see a big old telephone number. You see that? 832-something. 832. Actually, I'm going to say this for the sake of the recording. 832-263-3307, 832-263-3307, that's Woven Church's number. That's our church phone number, and it does receive text messages. And what's going to happen is through this sermon and throughout the series, we're going to have this number available for you. And during the sermon, get this, your pastor's telling you to text in service. While you are in the service, while you're listening to the sermon, and you say, wait, I don't get that. I have a burning question. What does this mean? Text the question into that number. And at the close of this sermon, we're going to have a brief Q&A, and I will do my best to answer the questions as they arise in a fair, you know, among the scholarly consensus kind of answer. And if I don't know, I'll tell you I don't know. And I'll research it. And for that matter, this number, you can even text the question in throughout the week. Even if it's not this moment during the service, text a question in throughout the week. Don't be afraid. Um, There are no bad questions um, as long as a question is about the text, not about what I'm wearing or about my hair or some other thing. Why does the church do this? Those questions are for another time. Focus Focus on what you're reading and say, why does Paul have to go this direction? Why does Jesus say that? Where is the story heading in this chapter? Uh, Those are the type of questions you can text in. And, um, and again, you can do that throughout the week. And if you do that throughout the week as you're reading, then I will address and I'll even research it. I'll do my best to research it for you and answer that question the coming Sunday. So let's dive into Luke. And I'm excited today to teach. And with Luke, I want to teach two themes, two themes that I think are very, very important and will help you to understand as you read uh, with the CBE. The first theme is a locational and a directional momentum. There's a locational and a directional momentum. This week, I rewatched a few of the Matrix movies. And that movie, I know I quote it ad nauseum. It seems like it's kind of played out. I, but I think there's, it's such a rich story. I don't think the Wachowskis have made a, a, a movie since that, that was that good. Um, that rich and that deep. And they kind of painted themselves into a corner from the very beginning. But if you remember the movie, the oracle tells Neo that his mission, that his goal is what? Not just to be the one, but it's to enter someplace called the source. 
And if you recall, you know, spoiler alert, you know, cover your ears if you haven't watched it, that he enters the source at the end of, of the second movie. He enters the virtual reality source, and it turns out that's not the source. He has to enter the actual, more greater source, which is Machine City. And there in Machine City, he encounters what's called the deus ex machina and all that nerd stuff. And basically, he gives, okay, spoiler alert, so you can do this, right? But basically, he gives his life over. He gives his life up. I think even as he's carried, his arms are extended like this. Is that correct? Nerds, help me. So, right, and so there's an atonement happening. He gives his life in the source. So there's a directional movement in the entire three movies towards this place called the source. That is philosophically and theologically profound. It's exactly what Jesus does throughout Luke, well, through Luke. He, he's moving progressively in the narrative. It's moving us closer and closer. At one point, Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, I, he, I have to go to Jerusalem. I know it's going to happen there. You get the sense he knows, but he doesn't want to do it, but he sets his face, is what it says in Luke 9, 51. He sets his face resolutely to go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the source. And it's there that he's going to offer up his life, cleansing the source and there's a, a dual sense about this, because if you're following with me in the Matrix, Neo enters the source, the virtual reality, the Matrix source. It's not the real source. He had to enter into a more real source. And in a sense, that's what the author of Hebrews is talking about in Hebrews 9. When Christ appeared as a high priest, he entered the greater and more perfect tent, the greater and more perfect temple, tabernacle. Not the one that was made with hands, not of this creation, but he had to enter this holy place once and for all. So there's a sense where it's, there's a double sense. Not only does Jesus have to enter into the temple, which he does, and he throws out the money changers and he cleanses the temple, but he also enters a more heavenly temple to cleanse it on behalf of all of us. So he enters the source, offers himself, and in the book of Acts, you see the reverse momentum. Now that the source is cleansed, Jerusalem and the temple is cleansed, the momentum goes outwards from Jerusalem out into all the nations. I really believe that we are beneficiaries of a multi-ethnic gospel, of a multi-ethnic gospel, and a multi-ethnic mission. And so the source is Jerusalem, and outward in Acts, it'll go outward to all the nations so why is Jerusalem so important? What makes Jerusalem the source? If you can pull up that first JPEG, the first picture. Why is Jerusalem the source? Why didn't Jesus say, I must go to Chicago, or I must go to Taipei, or I must go to Amsterdam? Why Jerusalem? What is it about? Is there some kind of magnetic anomaly? Is there something weird or spiritual? What is it about Jerusalem? Well, here I want to offer the history lesson um, that I think will really help and aid you in your reading and give you a bigger intuitive grasp as you read. So here's a map of the world. Uh, can you find Jerusalem? Uh -huh. <laughs> That's kind of the big overview. Just if you're like me, you get kind of disoriented. Where, where, where in the world are we? Well, we're actually presently somewhere over a uh, laser pointer. I think we're on. Wait, 
Yes, there we are. So America's over here. Does everybody see that? And then you have the Atlantic Ocean. Okay, now you all are intelligent folk. Europe, Africa, Asia, India, and then the Middle East. And in the Middle East, if you can hone in to the next picture, you get a little bit closer. And in this region, you have Israel right there. This is the Mediterranean, a very important location. The Mediterranean Sea. You have Greece there and Italy over there. So, you know, if you've played Risk, you kind of, the board game Risk, you kind of know your way around. I love that game. And then hone in a little bit more. This becomes this. And here, now, mind you, this is a modern-day photo. This is Google Maps. So it didn't look like that back then. The boundaries were different. But generally, this is the area. This is the region, Israel. And I think we get even one more closer. Is that correct? Right. And so you have the holy city, Jerusalem. And today, Jerusalem... What an amazing place. I mean, you have the Temple of the, you know, the, temple of the Mount and, you know, Dome of the Rock. It's, it's like all of the world's major religions all in one place. What is it about this place, Jerusalem, and the Holy Temple inside Jerusalem? What is it about this land? Um, I've quoted this movie before, uh, Steven Spielberg movie, Munich, uh, disturbing movie. And there's a scene where a Palestinian and a Jew are talking and they're saying, well, you know, why, why would you die? It's just a piece of dirt. What is it about this land that's so important to you? And one of the characters, he says, this land is my life. This land is my home. And so the land is identified deep within by numerous cultures. The Jews lay special claim because going all the way back to Genesis, they claim the promised land, Israel, as their own. If we can just keep that up, that last picture. They claim the promised land as their own because it was given to them in Genesis 12 from God to the father of the Israelites, who, which was, help me out here, Abraham. And to God, or to Abraham, God says, this land I will give to you and your descendants. And so they lay claim to this land, and this land would be their home, like, that, like, the move, like the line from Munich, the land is my blood, it is my life, it is my home, it is everything. And for several generations, for, for, for a good period, they maintained sovereignty, they owned the land, they lived on it, they grew prosperous at one point, so rich and wealthy, um, King Solomon uh, who was the third king of Israel, would become famous throughout all of the Middle East. Famous. And people would come, the, the, you know, the queen from the south would come and visit and see Jerusalem and see the Holy Temple. And all of the people would come to this place because it was a wonder. But gradually with corruption and as the nation grew weak, Something happened around, I believe it was 600, about the 600s B.C. Now, do you all know how the calendar worked back then? When I say B.C., the clock worked backwards up until zero. So 600 B.C., 500, 400, 300, 200, 100, and then zero, and then the calendar starts going upwards, 100, 200, 1000 A.D., 2017 A.D. Does that make sense? So we say 600 B.C., we're talking 2,600 years ago. And what happened was, if you can pull up that first picture, a kingdom called Babylon and uh, the great emperor, the king Nebuchadnezzar, 
took over this entire region. He took over this entire region. So you can see the Babylonian Empire. Israel is right there. Jerusalem is right there. And uh, destroyed everything. And this was a tremendous shock. This is important because for the Israelites, Jerusalem and the Holy Temple inside Jerusalem was, it represented God among them. God's house. The temple was God's house. When Nebuchadnezzar destroyed God's house, it was almost as if God left the building. God was no longer in the church. And so with the temple destroyed, it was a tremendous shock to the psyche, to the worldview of the Israelite. And what happened was uh, they were taken off to captivity. So you can see if you were Jewish, if you were an Israelite from Jerusalem, they were carted off all the way to Babylon, out east. So from Jerusalem to Babylon, you know, and by the rivers of Babylon, if you know that song, where we sat down, we wept because we longed for home. We longed to return back to Israel, to Jerusalem. We longed for our, I mean, man, if I lived all the way there, I would long for the shore. So they were carted off to Babylon as prisoners. Something happened shortly after that. Um, Well, not shortly, but you know, a good generation in 538, another kingdom overtook Babylon. And this is the Persian kingdom, if you can pull that next. The Persian kingdom was even bigger. The Persian empire, so Babylon before stretched to about this much. The Persian empire extended even more. And the Persian empire was bigger and more powerful and overtook Babylon. Persians were the, descent, uh, the descendants of Persia today are Iran, Iranians, Iran. And the Persian Empire was very progressive. Uh, In particular, their king, Cyrus the Great, was a a notable king, especially in terms of human rights. Whereas other emperors would take over a region, kill, suppress, destroy, and subjugate the people and enslave them, Cyrus the Great, uh, what he did instead was he gave the people their religious freedoms back. It's remarkable. He was known by all of the cultures in this area, not as a harsh, cruel ruler, but as their father, as the father of all of these peoples. And Israel in particular was very grateful, so grateful that in Isaiah, they talk about Cyrus the Great as a savior of the Jewish people, as a savior. Now that's kind of, hmm, question mark. I thought Jesus was the savior, and yes, he is. But there is one point where it's explicitly said that Cyrus is like a Messiah to the Jewish people. How could Cyrus the Great, a foreign Gentile king, be a Messiah to the Jewish people? The reason is because of this human rights charter, because of this magnanimous attitude, because of this emphasis on religious freedom. We're going to allow the people and we're not going to subjugate them. We're going to give them their freedoms back. And what he did was he allowed the Israelites to return back home and he allowed them to rebuild the temple. And for the Jewish people, God would go up with a shout. They would sing again in in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. What you see is during the period of Cyrus, they're returning back home and they're rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. Now, mind you, the land still belongs to who? Cyrus and Persia. But he's allowing them. He's saying, under my rule, you can do whatever you want. You can, not whatever, but you have the freedom. And so they rebuild, and this is what's called, this is important, Second Temple Judaism. Second 
temple Judaism. And the thing is, when you see Israel, uh, Jewish people today, especially if they're Orthodox, you see the black and the whites, you see the tassels and the yarmulke and so on and so forth. It wasn't always like that. It wasn't always like that. Judaism evolved over the centuries and millennia. It evolved. And the Judaism that we see today is much more, uh, much more in line with Second Temple Judaism. Second Temple Judaism. I can't go into great detail. But basically, if you saw the first project destroyed and you get a chance to rebuild the project, how do you approach it the second time? With a great deal of caution, Right? We messed up the first time. We don't want to mess up again. And this would be the heart and the origin of Phariseeism as we know it. And the Phariseeism uh, movement would be the origin of the Orthodox Jewish rabbinical movement that we know today. Or rabbinic Judaism today comes from Phariseeism. And Phariseeism comes from Second Temple Judaism where the emphasis is on let's not screw up like we did the first time. We displeased God. He left the house. Everything was destroyed. They rebuilt the temple a second time. And they said, this time we're going to keep God's laws. And we're going to do it strictly. And that is the rabbinic Judaism as we know it today. So, they rebuild the temple, second temple Judaism. Even the great Persian Empire would not last, and it would be overtaken by the third empire, the Greek Empire. You can see these progressively getting bigger and bigger. Maybe some of you have read the story from Daniel, and you're familiar with the prophecy where Daniel interpreted King Nebuchadnezzar's dream, where he saw a great statue with a head of gold, and I think it was like shoulders of, of, of does anybody know, bronze and the torso of, 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 uh, It was gold, head and shoulders, knees and toes, knees and toes. It was something like that. In the end, the feet were were, uh, not iron. Was it iron? Iron and wood. It represented the different kingdoms, the four empires. That's exactly, it's remarkable how true it was. So the first empire, Babylonian, the second Persian, the, neck, the, the torso was the Greek, and then the feet were, was the Roman Empire. And then the stone that would come and smash everything was the coming kingdom of God through Jesus Christ. It's a remarkable prophecy. Um, but this kingdom, the, the, the Greek kingdom, uh, I enjoy talking about this, so hang with me. I think it will be interesting. How many of you have ever seen the movie Alexander starring Colin Farrell, which came out a couple of years ago? And this was a very educational movie. I don't think it was perfect, but you have the story of Alexander played by Colin Farrell, who's a young, charismatic general uh, king. And he led his armies to go eastward. Now, mind you, this is the Middle East. You can place Jerusalem there, right? And Israel. The Greeks came from here. You know your geography, right? And this is Italy, the boot. Greece is over here, and they would come from here, and they would go eastward. They also would overtake Egypt. Everybody wanted Egypt. This is the Fertile Crescent. So this was prime real estate right here, the Fertile Crescent. But he would push and push and push and push past all the way through to India. So his ambition was go east, go east, and he would take more and more. And this is what Alexander would do along the way. Along the way, his great army, he would drop off men who had earned the right to retire. Soldiers who had uh, done great exploits, he'd say, you fought the fight, you've won the race, you can now 
stay here and lay claim. And along the way, soldiers would become settlers. Soldiers, Greek soldiers would become settlers and they would colonize these different regions. And as they colonized these regions, they brought Greek language, Greek customs, Greek architecture, and such that the entire region spoke, the entire region became Greekified. It became Greekified. This is the phenomenon called Hellenism. Hellenism. And Hellenism is important because the Bible, the New Testament that you read, the entirety of the New Testament is written in what language? It's written in Greek. And this is why, friends, this is why. It should have been written in Hebrew or Aramaic. It was for Jewish people originally. But it was written in Greek because it was uh, the culture and the region became Hellenized. And not only did the soldiers stay there, they became the governors and they took over the region and they brought Greek architecture. And so, you know, in art school, I had to learn the different pillars, the columns of the Greek temples, Doric, Ionic. You know, they brought those kind of things and the conventions and the amphitheaters, the amphitheaters and the forums, the Greek spaces. They brought these everywhere they went so that when you read about Paul going before the authorities, even Jesus himself, what you're reading about is him before almost a Greekified court. Now, at that time, the Romans were in power, but he's standing in a Greek forum almost. Greek systems of democracy. And so that's what would happen. The region would become totally Greekified or Hellenized, so to speak. But it wouldn't stop there. There was a fourth empire that would take over, and the fourth empire, and you're like, whoa, check this out. This is kind of scary because, you know, with the red color, you can see how big. They started from here, the Romans did, from Italy, and then they went east and they went west. And this is by far the biggest map. And if you've ever played the game Risk, you know the hardest real estate to keep is Europe. It's, it's Europe because there's so many ways that enemies can come in and, and, and attack. But the point is, in Europe, since this period, there has not been an empire or a single power that had this much real estate and power since the Romans. There has not been. There was an attempt in the, the mid-1900s. There was an attempt. And it's eerie how, you know, the color is red. You know, this looks like a, a World War II map. And thankfully... The Allies pushed the Nazis back, and uh, the map does not look like this today, thankfully. But back then, the Romans, this is how much real estate. They went all the way up to Britannia, to England. They, took, they, they even went that far north. Spain, North Africa, they took. And that's why in North Africa, you would have Christian settlements. And one famous name, one famous character, Augustine. St. Augustine, the great theologian. It's worth reading his confessions if you if you want to grow um, in, in your understanding of early Christianity. In fact, Augustine's Confessions uh, is recognized as the first autobiography. The autobiography as a genre started with St. Augustine. And he would live in North Africa, North Africa. And it's because of Rome that Christianity spread to North Africa. And that's another story. And then, of course, you go eastward, and here again, the Fertile Crescent, and you have on the eastern border of the Mediterranean, Israel, Jerusalem, Egypt, and that region. And Rome would take Greek culture and take it to the next level. That's why when we talk about history, classical culture, we talk about Greco-Roman. 
It's not just Greece or Rome, Greco-Roman. Because the Romans, they were, they were left-brain thinkers in a sense. I think the Greek, this is my assessment, the Greeks were right-brain thinkers. They were creators. They were creative. They were lovers of life. They were Epicureans. They, they, the Romans were very methodical. They were structured and organized. And when they looked at what the Greeks had done, they said, well, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. We'll just kind of improve it. And so they built over what Greece did, in a sense, still working with Greek culture. That's why we call it Greco-Roman, but giving it the Roman flair, Roman democracy, Roman ideals, the Roman religion. And mind you, they were not as generous as Cyrus the Great. They were not as generous as the Persians. They were brutal, and they suppressed, and they said, no, you can't have the same freedoms that you had under Cyrus and Persia. We're going to be cruel, and they were, and they oppressed, they were oppressive, and but some things that they did that were good for Christianity, Romans being engineers, um, uh, engineers being organized and structured, they connected the various cities. So Alexander the Great would build cities throughout, right? And these different cities would become Hellenized. And what Rome did was they connected the cities through something called roads. And they built tra- roads that were travelable and trading routes, and they established shipping routes across the sea so that these roads, you could travel these roads and travel throughout Rome. The roads unified the empire. They unified the empire. I was listening to NPR the other night, and they were talking about how from downtown Houston to Katy was a three-day wagon ride. I kid you not, a three-day wagon ride from Houston to Katy. Now, because of I-10, were connected in a matter of half an hour. And so, in the same way, Rome connected the empire through the system of roads. And they connected everything. And what do you think benefited Christianity more than the system, the transportation system, the routes, the shipping routes, the connected roads? It enabled Christianity, friends. It enabled Christianity to spread like wildfire. It's very interesting that Jesus didn't come during the time of Nebuchadnezzar. He didn't come during the time of the Persians. He didn't even come during the time of the Greeks. He came during the time of the Romans. When the time was right, when the gospel message could spread like wildfire through the roads and through the highways and the byways, and because of those roads, you will understand now why Paul was always on the go. Because he could, he could afford to travel. And Paul was traveling and teaching the gospel everywhere he went. So, in conclusion with this first part about this locational momentum, this is the geographical sense. But everything hinged on this one city right here, Jerusalem, and the temple right in that spot. It was so important. Jesus had to go there. He had to cleanse it to purify it. When he drives out the money changers, consider that a cleansing. But in a spiritual sense, just like Neo had to enter into Machine City, Jesus had to offer himself in a higher, more perfect tabernacle. And in Acts, that's going to reverse. So that's the first part, the locational and geographic momentum, everything heading towards the source in Luke. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem is defiled. It's co-opted. It's politicked. It's polarized by politics. It's messed up. It is there in the source that Jesus cleanses it. And then in Acts, 
it's dynamic because from Jerusalem outwards, the gospel will go. The last thing I'll talk about, and I'll make this quick, I'll make it zippy, is the Holy Spirit. All right? So, a lot of teaching, I know the teaching is, is hard, but somewhere in there, find something that'll feed your soul. I'll take a deep breath. Holy Spirit, and this won't be long. The Holy Spirit is the key player and the mover. When you read Luke and Acts, now he wrote both, it's almost like, have you ever taken your child bowling or maybe even gone bowling yourself where you put up those, ra- those side things? What are those things called? What are they called? Bumpers? The Holy Spirit is like the bumpers of the story. It's the, whole, it, the Holy Spirit is like the bumpers of the narrative where you see the story going this way. I'm just going to bump it this way. It's going this way and it'll bump it back to the straight. And in that sense, Everywhere where the story kind of meanders or wherever the story goes, you see the Holy Spirit is the one that takes initiative to move things along. For example, when Mary, become, when Mary conceives, it says the Holy Spirit will come upon you. So Jesus' conception, the Holy Spirit. When Jesus is baptized, what happens? A Holy Spirit comes down. The Holy Spirit comes down like a dove. Even when Jesus is tempted, which is a very important uh, theological theme. But when he's tempted in the wilderness, it says the Holy Spirit sent him there. And after that, when Jesus begins his preaching ministry, he begins with the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Even at the end of the book of Luke, Jesus tells them, stay in the city until the power from on high. In other words, the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Hang out, the Spirit is coming. The Spirit Spirit is a key player and movement through the narrative of Luke and Acts. And it moves back and forth, uh, but always the Spirit brings it back to where it's supposed to be. See, and I'll finish off with this. This is fun. This is funny. It's interesting. And this is... This is the last passage I'll read. It's Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, verse 21. The disciples are gathered. The 12 apostles now are 11. Because last we saw, there was one who was a traitor, Judas. And Judas committed suicide. And so they say, the 12 of us now are just the 11 of us. And we have to replace that number. And what, we, what they did in, early on, the first thing they do in Acts chapter 1 is they add a 12th man to the apostles. Twelfth man, his name is Matthias. Matthias. Now listen to this. Here's the thing. Scholars have researched this character, Matthias. We've looked in early church literature. We've looked in uh, early church tradition. There is almost nil, nothing in, no, no record of the deeds or the history. We know nothing about Matthias. I might be assuming here, but I don't know if Matthias, I mean, God forbid, but it's not like I can say, but I don't know if he did anything of note. Maybe he did, but the thing is, we don't know anything about him. Matthias is a big question mark. But they felt it was important to add a 12th person, so they add Matthias. But here's the thing, when you read the rest of the book of Acts, it's not Matthias' name that comes up that Matthias was the 12th man and he did all this. It was somebody else and his name was Paul. 
And this Paul would shake everything, the foundations of what they believed. In a sense, he was the hidden 12th disciple that God and the Holy Spirit had in mind all along. The 12th one that would lead the gospel in a direction that would transform the world as we know it. And it is with Paul, Paul, Paul. I mean, if we have nothing about Matthias, there is not enough ink that's been spilt about Paul. There's so much about Paul, so much. We even have historical descriptions about what Paul might have looked like. Allegedly, he was short, bald, his eyebrows connected, and he was bow-legged and muscular. That's, that's, they have a historical record about Paul. Such a significant player was he. You know, in closing, think, the Holy Spirit is leading woven church too. And the decisions that we make, the things that we do, the way that we grow, it's in his plan. He knows what he's doing. Sometimes I want to do things. I'm learning as a leader to hold things loosely. Do I have to die on this hill to allow the spirit room to move? Because in the end, the Holy Spirit is a key player and narrative. And our sensitivity to that and our ability to adjust is uh, important. Just like in the book of Acts. This has been a Woven Church podcast. Woven Church is a multi-ethnic missional church that meets in West Houston. We invite you to check us out on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. To find out more, visit us online at www.wovenchurch.org. That's www.wovenchurch.org.